morning at earlier service and now again. Oh, it's exciting. And thank you, Joseph, for, for bringing, um, <clears throat> not only bringing other creative artists to us, like 2911, but for getting us up and singing with the pop-up choirs. It's really been <clears throat> pretty wonderful to, to have some uh, uh, added dimensions to our worship. So thank you, Joseph. I appreciate it. Thank you. Amen. And young Judith, God bless you as you go. It's really been a blessing to have you with us. So thank you for sharing your gifts with us, even for a relatively short amount of time. Thank you. God bless you. Well, once again, happy Father's Day to you all. It really is good to be with you today. We're going to take another, time, some, another opportunity to pray and then get into our uh, message for the morning. Lord, thank you for who you are and for what you've been doing. Lord, thank you for this day, and we do once again thank you for the dads and, and the, um, those who have been like dads in many ways for so many. And Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would help us today as we look into your word and wrestle with the truth of it, that you would help us in these troubling times. We are living in difficult times. I guess your people have always done that, lived in difficult times. Help us to let our light shine and and to be true to your word and not um, uh, just when things are convenient. But I pray, Lord God, we'd be your prophetic voice to this world, salt and light as Jesus declared us to be. Now I pray you'd help me, Lord, to communicate from your word and in a way that would be helpful to us and challenging to us so we can live more faithfully into our calling. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide our time now. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I wish a father's uh, happy Father's Day today, it's a day that we get to uh, make fun of dads. We get to crack jokes. We also um, acknowledge how important and valuable fathers are. And I always want to point out the same thing that I do at Mother's Day. These sorts of days get, get a lot of attention in the church, but they're not always happy for some people, depending on their relationship with their parents. Papa was a rolling stone. Wherever he laid his hat was his home. When he died, <laughs> all he left us was alone. Hey, Mama, that ain't right. Anyway, um, if, y'all, if you know the song, you know what I mean. But depending upon one's relationship with their parents, or even their own desire to be parents, this could be a difficult time. So I just want to acknowledge that and say we as a community understand And to believe that even though human beings might fail us, we want you to know God will not. I also ask that you allow us to reflect on fatherhood in a general way, even if your personal situation has been far from ideal. I have a few stories about dads and a few dad sayings that I thought would be helpful as we get into the message for today. This woman submitted a story about how uh, men and dads can be clueless at times. She says, shortly before our 25th anniversary, my husband sent 25 long-stemmed roses uh, to me at my office. A few days later, I plucked all the petals and dried them. On the night of our anniversary, I spread the petals over the bed and lay on top of them wearing only a negligee. As I hoped, I got a reaction from my husband. When he saw me, he shouted, are those potato chips? Yes, we men can, can be clueless sometimes. And, and we dads can be the source of interesting comments. And there are classic ones. I'm sure you could think of a bunch that your own dad would say. I'm not yelling at you. I'm helping you here. <laughs> if you drive up to our house, park in the driveway and honk the horn, you better be delivering a pizza because you won't be taking out my daughter. <laughs> 
And this one, I know I've said this one, elope, it's cheaper. <laughs> and we've all said this one, don't make me stop this car. <laughs> Classics. Dads are known for goofy and corny sayings, but also for giving good advice. And I came across some that I thought were really pretty uh, helpful. You don't have to answer the phone just because it rings. My dad always felt that if he was with a family member or a friend, that person took precedence over whoever might be calling. He taught me to focus on the people I'm with regardless of the situation. After all, they deserve my full attention. There are three kinds of people in this world. Those who make things happen, those who sit back and watch things happen, and those who say, wait, what happened? Be the person who makes things happen. Leave the party before you stop having fun. Hmm. The best advice my father ever gave was passed down from his dad. Never try to solve problems at night because they always seem worse than they do in the morning. Though I sometimes lack the self-control to follow this suggestion, I've learned over the years that it's true. Darkness can make even the smallest obstacle seem insurmountable. I thought that was kind of deep and actually true, at least for me. Today we're starting a new series. It's a series in a, a letter called Second Timothy. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his young protege, Timothy. And in many ways, the book functions like the words of wisdom and challenge and encouragement of a father to a child. So as I make a transition here from the sanctuary to become a full-time seminary professor, I want to use these next several weeks to share from my heart and be a little bit like Paul writing to Timothy. Timothy was in a city called Ephesus. Ephesus is in, is in uh, Turkey, modern day, and you can see some other major cities that you might hear about in the Bible. Paul wrote letters to the church at Corinth, Philippi, he preached in Athens, Antioch is where the mission work of the church got started, um, and of course, Jerusalem. But Rome is all the way over there. It's pretty far away, and Paul is considered at this time they've been in a, Romans, a Roman prison. In fact, 2 Timothy is his last letter before he's executed under Emperor Nero. So not only are these words of advice from Paul, these are his final words to his young disciple. And we'll start off by looking at the first seven verses of 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, for the sake of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did when I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Notice in those opening verses, the emphasis on family. Paul, first of all, calls Timothy his child. There's a long tradition, particularly in the African-American church, of people coming up in ministry under pastors, and they're called sons and daughters of the church. And I, I know people who would say I became uh, I was a son of the, in the ministry of Reverend so-and-so or daughter in the ministry of Reverend so-and-so. It's a good tradition, I think, and, uh, and it comes from here, from this 
since Paul was not Timothy's biological father, but he was a father in ministry to Timothy. But he also refers to his own ancestors. Paul says that he worships the Lord with, sin- with sincerity, just like his ancestors did in good conscience. So, so even though many Jews did not come to see Jesus as Messiah, Paul does not question the sincerity of his ancestors. And then after calling Timothy his son, after pointing to his ancestors, he then goes on to mention Timothy's mother and grandmother as spiritual teachers for Timothy. So my first point today is that our faith is a family affair. So I want to encourage you to stay connected. Our faith is a family affair, so stay connected. So let me say thanks to all of you who are taking the survey. It is very important. It will be helpful to whomever it is that God calls to come and serve here. And when I interviewed about seven years ago, Joel mentioned I got some information that apparently came from a survey. One of the most common things said about the sanctuary is the same thing that's said today is that we are a diverse church. Most people acknowledge that right away. Most of you do. But the second most common thing I got back then was that we were disconnected. Somebody said we had a big front door, big back door. People came in, people left. And, I, and now I, I realize not everyone felt that way, but it was a common sentiment that I heard it a lot in my first few weeks here. It was expressed in writing. It was brought up in discussions among members, among staff, among some of the elder board. And in light of that, the very first sermon series I did was one from the book of Philippians because the theme in that book stresses fellowship and unity with the spirit of joy undergirding the whole community. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. And I still believe in being a united, joyful fellowship of Christ followers, and that's more important, I'll say it, it's more important even than the music, as much as I appreciate good music. It's more important than the building, as beautiful and awesome as this building is. We have air conditioning, folks. I mean, this is, I know it sounds funny, but y'all remember Ann Watton. And some of of y'all remember even before that, but Ann Watton was a sweat box. Um, It's more important to be family than even our website or pretty much anything else. I mean, and all of those things are important. I have this huge respect for Jeremy Scheller who who takes our thoughts and dreams and he turns them into these awesome visual realities. I have respect for talented musicians and I, I think, of course, that this building is a tremendous testament to God's faithfulness. But, and this is a big but, so to speak, this is my little hat tip to Pee Wee Herman, but that's all right. If we forget that faith is a family affair, then all those other things could amount to just gimmicks. More and more churches are resorting to gimmicks to fill the seats because they think the goal is a full house. Yeah, I certainly would love to see all the seats filled, but the full house is actually a result of something else. The goal is not to fill the seats. The goal is to glorify God with our entire lives. This is the goal. And as we strive to do that, people will be drawn to the sincerity of our faith. Paul commends Timothy, he says, for his sincere faith. Sincere means without hypocrisy. Sincere faith gets worked out in the context of relationships. Twice during my six years here, we we went through emotional, healthy spirituality because we needed to learn and practice how to be open, honest, and vulnerable with each other. No no fronting. I was thinking just recently what these uh, two high-profile suicides, Anthony Bourdain, and I forgot the woman's name, that Kate Spade. And, and, uh, and we talked about it, you know, for like two days because that's how things go in our society. But, but some, fr- some of my friends, particularly in ministry, were really lamenting how hard it is 
for us to talk about important things like depression in the church because we're taught you have to always have a good face on. You always are okay when somebody asks you, how you doing? Okay. We can't be discouraged. We've been singing, we should never be discouraged. But we get discouraged. People get depressed. And if we can't talk about this in Christian community, where in the world can we talk about it? So we need to learn to be family. Life groups under the direction of Pastor Edwin have helped us to feel more connected. Our intergenerational way of thinking under the direction and motivation of Pastor Rose has made us approach ministry more like a family. Pastor Mike's attempts to help us support each other and serve our community together help us live out a reality that faith is a family affair, so we must stay connected. Last Wednesday, just was a wonderful time. I'm not going to put my brother on blast. He can tell his own story. <clears throat> but I had this deep sense of joy when my brother Daryl just shared a little bit of what God was saying to him and doing in his life at Bible study. And it was our elder Nicole who pointed out that we had three times as many men as women in Bible study, which doesn't often happen in church life that we get, or have the men outnumber the women like that. Not that we're counting, but it was an interesting testimony. And to hear how we were all kind of mutually encouraging one another, it was bringing tears to my eyes because to me, that's what church is about. Yeah, amen. I'm thrilled at how we are becoming, how we are welcoming people, how we are practicing sincere faith and love for one another, learning from each other, uh, serving each other, doing what it takes to grow as a family of believers. Now, I know sometimes that um, when churches grow bigger, there's a feeling that people will get lost and they'll no longer feel like a community. So, so we even have sometimes people uh, unconsciously working against the growth of the church because they don't want to lose something that they feel is quite special in the smallness. We fear that this family affair that I'm talking about is going to get lost. But it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to become so focused on the numbers that we forget to be a community. And as a leader once said, you don't have to know everybody, but everybody should be known. And I like that. If we keep having places where people can connect, even, uh, even as we grow bigger, we will not lose the family connectedness. I often tell the story of when I was first starting out as a church planter, and I was all excited for us to get out of my little apartment and move into a, another space. A woman in the group decided to drop out, and I've mentioned this many times. She said to me straight out, she said, look, church is something I go to, not something I'm part of. And I thought that that was a minority opinion and actually was kind of shocked. I think that's why it sits with me so much. But sadly, American evangelicalism has been content with such an attitude that people are just church something I go to, not something I'm part of. The only pastors we consider successful are ones who do pack the pews, pack the pews and not the ones who necessarily do the patient work of making disciples of Jesus. So we had a whole generation of baby boomers start picking churches based on how well they were marketed, not necessarily even on how they might even get involved in that church, just who had the best show in town. The pendulum has swung because many of our children, millennials, offspring of baby boomers, if they even go to church, don't really care that much about fog machines and cotton candy and all the other gimmicks that churches do to get a crowd. In general, they want to go to a church that's doing something. They want activist churches. And don't just take my word for it, ask some millennials. 
They want to be involved in a movement of God's spirit, not in status quo. And I'm one baby boomer that says amen to this. I like that spirit. I know that you millennials have your challenges. I understand. You're still figuring out your place in the world. You're still trying to fix the mistakes of previous generations while trying to pay off student loans. I think I get this. (laughs) Amen. But that's another reason why I say faith is a family affair. We need each other across the generations. We also need each other to be active in living out our faith. That's what Paul says to Timothy, because after commending him for this sincere faith, he goes on to say, rekindle the gift that God gave you. Rekindle the gift that God gave you. So my second point is God has gifted us, so get fired up, fired up. That's Paul's language. It's like Minnesotans in your fire pits. I came here and I didn't understand this. I didn't understand why people deliberately set fires on their own property. I couldn't see it. They wanted fires in the house. Now, I'm from New York. We live close together. You don't want people setting fires in their house. I mean, that's the whole street that can go up. But you people have fires in your house and in your backyard. And this thing with fire. And I, so, but then, you know, I chilled out a little bit. I went to some of y'all houses and I saw, yeah, when the weather's a little nippy, it's nice to sit by a fire removed from the house out in the yard. I think I get it. And when the flames start getting low, you throw some kindling on there because it takes oxygen and some hydrocarbon to burn so we can get a fire, right? So you put the log on and you fan the flames because you need to get the oxygen to react so we can get, we can get the chemicals going and get the fire going. Well, this, this, is, this is us with our spiritual gifts. This, the Holy Spirit has given us talents and abilities and gifts, and gifts to glorify God, but they need to be stirred up. They need to be fired up. And Paul comments that Timothy's gift came from God. Paul laid his hands on them, just like it's going to happen to, to um, Elder Nicole and, and, and Pastor Edron on Saturday when they get ordained in ministry. They will have more uh, experience and seasoned pastors lay hands on them, symbolic of what's happening right here in this verse and many other verses, a practice that is modeled here, a public recognition that the Holy Spirit is called and gifted. And God gifts his people so that all of God's people are blessed and empowered to do God's work. He gifts his people so that all of God's people are blessed and empowered. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians 12, another writing of Paul's, that gets at this very topic. It's a whole chapter on spiritual gifts. But just this one verse I want to highlight, chapter 12, verse 7. It says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. I think we miss that sometimes because I have met over my lifetime um, a lot of Christians who claim to have particular gifts, particularly the flashy ones like speaking in tongues and healing, and they often will draw attention to themselves almost as if to say, I'm more spiritual than the rest of you. I don't know how we can get around what Paul wrote here in 12.7. The gifts of the Spirit aren't about you. They are about God. And they're about God working through his church. The gifts are given for the common good. Now, I tried to get this point across a few weeks ago when we talked about conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who works through us in the church. I wonder if American Christianity believes that God has truly gifted his church for the common good. You know, I found out last week that there was a guy at the front door with his anti-abortion sign. Now, I would... I tend to go out the other door, so I didn't see him. And some people were telling me about him. And, and, and as a church, because I know his group, 
we're being judged by him unless we share his particular views. I'm surely pro-fetus. I'm anti-abortion, but I try to be consistently pro-life, valuing life from the womb to the tomb. So I called my congressman, I called my senator, I contacted Attorney General Jeff Sessions' office because I don't want to just fuss on Facebook about how we're treating desperate people at the border. And then ripping scripture passages out of their context to give the government a blank check <laughs> to do what it wants. Nationalism is becoming more important than faith. This is not the first time, though. American com consumerism has many people walking to a church and taking its inventory of that church based on what it has or doesn't have according to their own liking. This is what we've created in America. So it's like Costco or Walmart. You come in as a consumer, and when we see some things, there's a few reactions. A, we just leave, look for another place because there's many options. B, We complain and sow discord while we're gossiping. I can't believe that church did this. I can't believe the pastor said that. I can't believe people do this. I can't believe they allowed that. And rather than leaving, which might be good at that point, you stay and start to build up a lot of uh, animosity. Then there's C. Look to see how you can help. C is the right answer. It's usually the right answer. I'm, I'm just kidding. It's the right answer now. But it doesn't happen enough. We need the people to stop standing on the corner or sitting at their keyboards criticizing churches. Instead, they need to get up and get involved in this multifaceted work of God's kingdom because there is a lot to be done, folks. So I think that the more a person feels like they belong, though, the more willing they are to use their gifts that God has given for the common good. So I see a connection between the first two points I'm trying to make. The, if we see our faith as a family affair, then we'll be more willing to put our gifts into use and fire up or rekindle our gifts. Because if you don't feel like you belong, why would you bother to get involved? So I want to put this challenge out. Paul tells Timothy to rekindle. He puts the ball in Timothy's court to fire up that gift. I dare say you should not have to wait for us to ask you to do the very particular thing that you are capable of doing. When you realize that God has gifted you, and I hope you do realize it, you will have to be involved. I pick on Andrea a little bit. Who wouldn't say she has a gift of service? She has a gift of service. <laughs> She's moving all the time. Sometimes people like that need to like slow down because they're doing so much. But what I mean is that if you're genuinely gifted, you will do what God's called you to do. We won't have to pull teeth, so to speak. But we want to do what God's called us to do according to the gifts that he's given to us. Because some people try to do things they're not gifted to do. Have you ever heard of Florence Foster Jenkins? Some of you might have. She was a wealthy woman, late 19th, early 20th century. She fancied herself an opera singer. You could go on YouTube. There's only like a couple of recordings of her. She's horrible. She's horrible. She's, but she was a rich white woman, so she could keep having concerts, and people would come. They'd snicker. They'd tell a story of how um, one time her pianist, her company was, you know, made eye contact with people in the audience, and he smiled like, I know this is horrible. She found out, and she fired him, of course. But, but she kept on going. She booked herself 
to sing at Carnegie Hall. I mean, this, her story is so legend that they made a whole movie about her, and it was Meryl Streep started. I mean, they got the big guns. Meryl Streep, she was in an interview having to sing like, like uh, Florence Foster Jenkins. It was really hard on her voice, and she was talking about how many takes she had to do, and she was hard to, because the singing was really bad. But people who are like that sometimes want the most visible job. So this has been my experience because everybody wants to preach. I can't tell you how many people contact me wanting to preach at the sanctuary. And I guess, you know, I'm a pushover because I do let a lot of other people preach. But, um, and I kind of, maybe it's my issue. I, w- I was going to say more jokes about that. But, well, I do remember I, I used to, um, when I was serving on Capitol Hill, Gary Haugen, who started the International Justice Min- Mission, he it was brand new then, but he used to sit right down front with his, fam- with his wife, Jan, and their little kids. They're all big now, but... Um, but uh, Gary and I became friends. We used to have lunch and stuff, work out together and things. And, he, uh, and I said to him, I said, man, Gary, everybody wants to preach. I said, do I really make, am I really that bad that everybody wants to preach? He said, Dennis, everybody's got one sermon in them. <laughs> it's like, and I guess they want to keep on preaching it too. But um, anyway, he came and preached. I had him preach a message on justice. He's awesome. Um, I don't even know if he would know who I am anymore. He's so big now. But, but Everyone who's clamoring to preach is not necessarily a preacher. Not everyone who wants to be first is actually willing to be last. But God has gifted us in different ways. And when we're using the gifts that he has given us, we'll see more and more how God, I mean, unbelievers will see that God's real. People in the church already will start to believe that it's worth their time and energy to do what God's calling them to do because we'll see how our faith gets strengthened when we're using our gifts for the common good. That's healthy community. So I'm asking you to believe that our spiritual growth is a family affair. I'm asking you to fire up the gifts that God has given you. And then the last point I want to make is that God gives us what we need, so don't be afraid. God gives us what we need, so don't be afraid. Paul was in prison because he preached the gospel. He's in prison by the Romans, by that very government that he wrote about. Because Gentiles were being converted to faith, and Rome took that as undermining their authority. The enemy of God does not want us to use our gifts because if we do, lives will be changed. So the enemy will exploit our fears. It's possible that Timothy and maybe others were reluctant to preach knowing that Paul was in prison for doing that very thing. But Paul tells his young disciple, don't be timid, don't be cowardly. That's not from God. God gives us power, love, and the ability to make sound judgments. There's a church on the west side of Chicago called the Rock Church, full name Rock of Our Salvation Church. It started in 1983, and Susan and I became part in 1987, or rather in 1986. But in 87, the pastor hired me to be the minister of visitation and outreach. I was a seminary student at the time, position was part-time. It came with a car because the ministry was often donated uh, old used cars. So I got a Chevy Citation, and uh, yeah, they don't make them anymore. But, and you could laugh at the Citation, but it was better than the Pinto I had. And so <laughs> the Pinto had a rusted floor, and I, it was the, I was calling it the Flintstone car. But I was afraid to have my kids in the car. He knew it. He got me the, the Citation and a little stipend. And I used to personally visit the people who filled out the visitor cards at church. I'd go and pray with them, and 
I go up and down the street passing out literature. I tried to take people from church to share the gospel. I knocked on people's doors. I was young. I did everything I could to try to help the church grow. And I tried to get people, like I said, from church to come with me, but often I was out there by myself. And one time I recall going to this ugly apartment complex and, you know, it was challenging. And, and, but that was, you know, that's the city. That's the way a lot of things were. And, uh, and I followed up on a woman who had visited. It turned out she was a single mom, and I talked to her about Jesus and how to connect with the church. And then I offered to pray with her at the end. I asked her, you know, what can I pray for? What do you need? She said, I need a husband. So, <laughs> so I remember thinking two things. <laughs> First thing, I can't help you with that. And second, um, I better leave. <laughs> so, <laughs> and after that, I, I didn't make any more visits alone after that. Um, but, but, and, and there was wisdom in that. But house visits and street ministry are some of the experiences I've had over years that challenged my temperament. I mean, as an introvert, I'm not particularly big on talking to strangers or knocking, at people's, knocking on people's doors, but I got past some of my fears. And, and as I grew in leadership, I faced different challenges, had different fears. I've had to confront people, correct people, listen to people call me names, people demean me in different ways. And sometimes it's, it's, it's this very f- verse that comes to my mind. God has not given you a spirit of timidity or fear, but power, love, and self-discipline. And I've had to learn how to act in that despite my fears. Now, here we are as a church at an interesting place. And I don't just mean that in our history with transition. I mean our geography. We're at a hot corner, sharing space with a busy liquor store across over here, with a busy grocery store over there. Not all that busyness is positive and productive. <laughs> Mr. Cohen from Merwin Liquor called me on Saturday, uh, Friday morning because he was agitated about things that went down on Thursday night that we caught on our cameras here. And, and he had a lot of conversation. We've had conversation before. He's been trying to get us to meet with uh, Jeremiah Ellison, but, but Ellison doesn't want to meet with him. And we've had a lot of conversation, things going back and forth. But he said to me, he said, look, well, he said, look, I'm Jewish. He said, but I am thrilled that your church is here. He said, it means so much to our community. And he said, they, they publicized the Man Up event. So get this, we've got a liquor store advertising an evangelistic event on our lawn. Yeah, that's big. And then, then they've asked us to help them with their customer appreciation day, which is coming up. Yeah. Is this an opportunity? I say it is. I say it is. Outside the box, folks. Outside the box. Right? But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, some people could view our ministry location as a source of fear. They could be timid. But I'm asking, can you see our location as a gift from God? Not be frightened by this context, but remember that our, the spirit given to us is one of power, love, and sober judgment. The very things we need to minister in this spot. This is what God gives us. So he's given us what we need, so don't be afraid. Amen? So here as a, as a church, we say we value diversity. I mean, but with that diversity comes challenges. I mean, one of the reasons why we created the My Church Gathering is so we could talk outside of Sunday morning about some of the things that are important to us. I mean, if we're diverse, what happens when we offend each other, maybe even without realizing it? By the way, folks, it will happen. It will happen. People will make offensive comments 
even maybe racially offensive and not even realize they're doing it. What are we going to do? Will ethnic minorities feel whitewashed? Will we be able to have more substantive conversations about race, power, privilege without ducking and running out of fear? God has been taking the sanctuary on a journey. And there's going to be new challenges ahead after I go. Will you confront them? Will you approach them as a family of believers connected by the Spirit of God, exercising the gifts God has given for the common good and not be motivated by fear? So instead, I'm asking that you would yield yourself to the Spirit of God, to the Spirit of power, love, and sober judgment, so God can do a work of transformation in our neighborhood. This is what I'm asking. There's a lot of work to be done in our society, and people of faith and goodwill can help make positive impact on this country, not just in the rhetoric that's flying around in the news waves, but in substantive loving action that is truer to the way of Jesus. We're about to participate in the Lord's Supper or communion. Can you come to the Lord's table with a renewed commitment to see your faith journey as a family affair? Can you come to the table ready to exercise your spiritual gifts for the common good? Can you come today ready to renounce fears or any timidity or any cowardice and ready to accept the power, the love, and the discipline that come from God? That's what I'm asking today. As I invite the servers and the praise team to come forward, I simply want you to take a moment as I pray to reflect on what I said and see how it might resonate with you, especially at this time in our history. Lord, I thank you for your words to, through Paul to Timothy. I thank you for the loving relationship they had with one another, and I thank you for the love that I found here at the sanctuary and along this six-year journey. And I'm praying, Lord God, that you would help me um, to communicate what's needed as I prepare to leave in a way that's helpful, clear, motivated by your spirit. And I pray, Lord God, that as we take in the message today, we would be like Timothy. We would be family, learning from each other. We'd rekindle our gifts, and we'd be motivated by your spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. So Lord, please speak to us individually and collectively as we take these elements today, guide us by your spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.